0: Hello, I'm Catherine.
1: And I'm Gail, and we want to welcome you to Women Over 70's video series, Advocates for Women Aging. And today we're delighted to bring to our studios uh, Sarah Hart, who is a PhD, is 75 years old, an author, a speaker, a coach, and her passion is people development. She now leads the charge for how older women are seen and treated in our society. She's the creator of Prime Spark, a movement to transform how women over 55 take charge of their future. Sarah is the author of three books and has over 40 years experience in leadership development, coaching, and building thinking environments. She was director of training and development for a Fortune 100 company, and Executive Director of the Institute for Women and Technology. To learn more about claiming your power as a senior woman, please visit primesparkwomen.com. So, Sarah, we're happy to have you.
2: Oh, thank you, Gail. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Good, good. And um, so it might be interesting to start talking about a little bit about your career, your original career, right, and then... Take us to how your thinking has evolved and how you got into this arena.
2: Okay. Um, well, I'll start, and if you want to ask me a question in the middle anytime, that's just fine with me.
1: So, <laughs> good. We
2: will. Um, I started. I um, am from a small farming town in southern Ohio. I went to Ohio University for undergraduate. And then I went to Northwestern for my PhD in group communication. And from there, I went and taught for five years at Queens College in uh, this part of the City University of New York system. And I taught all things communication, group communication, interpersonal communication, you in communication, me in communication. I mean, just all communication. Um, And then after that, I started at uh, Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company in Manhattan. Um, And I was in the, I was a personnel generalist. I, uh, we called it personnel in those days. I was a personnel generalist. I knew nothing about it, but it was the only thing that was in any way, shape, or form close to my background um, of people development. So... Um, and I think after about nine months, they realized that they were going to have to do something with me because I was doing things like putting new crossword puzzles in the employee newsletter because I was just bored. And so <laughs> they sent me to the research division in Groton, Connecticut. And um, I was in the research division then for 19 years. So I was advisor altogether about 20 years. Um, And I was head of training and development for all of the uh, research division um, for non-technical. I didn't teach people how to use pipettes, but I taught them how to supervise and lead and um, deal with one another and deal with difficult people and all that sort of thing. So I was in Groton, Connecticut, and then um, I went uh, for Pfizer to Sandwich, England and was head of HR for the research division in Sandwich, England um, and agreed to stay for five, after I was there for five years and I agreed to stay one year and set up a new training and development function in the UK. And then I went back to the United States and I basically went back into the same job in, in Connecticut. And it was, the division at that point had grown, it had almost doubled. So In a way, it was a much bigger job. And in another way, it was a much smaller job. Because I had, at that point, lived overseas for five years. I'd managed my own department. Um, We had doubled in size over there also. And I really felt like I'd gone back to high school. I mean, there wasn't anything wrong. It was a great job. Um, And so at that point, it was a wonderful company. I have no idea about it now. I've been gone too long but I just couldn't do it anymore. And I realized I I just I needed to do something else. And so I went through my first downsizing and sold about 90% of what I owned, put everything I had left in my car and drove to San Francisco, where I decided I wanted to live. And so I had a, a one-room apartment that had everything I owned in it. Um, and for a year, I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. I'm sorry, how old were you at that time? By then? At that time, I was uh, twenty-five, five
1: thirty,
2: fifty. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because when I left Pfizer, people were uh, friends of mine were really upset because at that point nobody left big mm-hmm. companies. You know, at that point, you just didn't leave. So um, people thought I was either fired or I was having a nervous breakdown. Um, They just couldn't get it. And they wanted me to stay because I couldn't take early retirement until age 55. But I knew if I stayed, my soul would be a raisin by the time I was 55. And it wouldn't matter what I did. And so I left. When I got to San Francisco, um, I didn't know anybody, but... Um, people uh, back home in Connecticut would say, What do you want to do? And at that point, the only thing I knew I wanted to do was go to the coffee shop every morning and sit there and drink coffee and read the paper until I was done. Because <laughs> the entire time I'd been working, I didn't have time to do that except maybe on weekends, but not sure. I then. And so I honestly did that for a full year. (laughs) Thank you Pfizer for hiring me back as a consultant because that, that paid for that year. But I got up every morning and went down to a gym and worked out and then went and and drank coffee and read the paper. But during that time, reading the paper all that time, it was the um, dot-com boom of the 1990s out here. And there were overnight millionaires who were 22 years old and they were mostly guys. Um, and they had these companies that nobody really knew what they did, but they sold them for millions of dollars and bought huge houses. that at that point we called McMansions and they bought these amazing cars and on and on and on. And then, They realized they were bored. And so they started another company. And I remember where I was sitting in that coffee shop. I remember the day. I said, I may have said it out loud. Gosh, you guys, how will you know when you have enough? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I thought, well, that's really interesting. How will any of us know when we have enough? So... That's when I started my personal project called The Sign of Enough. And it's designed to help us answer the question, how will I know when I have enough? And it can be enough anything. It could be food, sex, booze, T-shirts, socks, whatever. I usually talk about it in terms of enough stuff because so many of us can identify with that. And so how will I know when I have enough stuff? So that was how I developed my sign of enough, and I have been working with that in one way or another for, well, since 1996. So that's a very long time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But after that, I decided that... um, I really needed to start working. I was finally, you know, it it took a year to heal from that 20 years in the corporate world. And it was a wonderful company. I I can't imagine how bad it is when you're in a bad company. I was in a good company and I still needed that long. But then I was ready. And so I started my company, HeartCom, and I still have it. And it it has anything to do with people development, um, coaching consulting, team building, off-site meetings, whatever. Um, and I did that. I've done that for 20-some years. So about three years ago, um, I went through two things sort of converged. I went through a major downsizing again of my home because it was really time to leave Uh, It was a very big house for one person and a cat. Um, And it was really time to stop using all my energy and my resources to take care of this big house. So I went through this very, very, very big downsizing and moved into a one-bedroom apartment. But the downsizing this time was harder than the first time. I don't know why, but it was. And so I wrote about it. Every day, almost, I would go to this favorite coffee shop and write. And that turned into my book, The Upside of Downsizing, Getting to Enough. And what it is, is a description of the emotional side of downsizing your home, not the practical side of it. It's what it feels like to get rid of family pictures and... Kids' favorite toys and their graduation tassels and their trophies. And, have you seen my house? <laughs> have you been to my house? <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing. I mean, people have this stuff, and um, I don't know how many people I've talked to. And I say, you got to get rid of this stuff. You got to start getting rid of this stuff. And said, I can't get rid of this stuff. So you got to start getting rid of this stuff because. It's getting harder and harder to get rid of stuff because people won't take our stuff. Um, there's no room for our stuff. And so you've got to start getting rid of it. And one of the really interesting things, two things I've found, and in, in I've done a lot of book readings and signings and talking to people, and um, one of the things I find consistently is that people ask their kids, what of all this stuff do you want? This is your stuff. These are your toys. This is all your memorabilia. What do you want And they don't really want it, but they don't want you to get rid of it. And so we just have to be hard-nosed and get rid of it and say, okay, you take what you want. The rest is going out Friday afternoon and do it. The second thing I found over and over again is that people are saving things for the kids. And so they've got this beautiful crystal and china and table linens and what they find is that the kids don't want anything. They don't even want the table. That stuff goes on. And so it's really time to start getting rid of stuff and um, getting down to a point of just enough. That's what I realized while I was writing the book, that it was the opportunity for me to get to enough. And um, so that's the name of the book, The Upside of Downsizing, is getting to enough and it feels really good i'm in this one room apartment i love it i have plenty of space the only two things i've missed since i moved with my huge downsizing was a an apple corer when it came time to make applesauce and then i realized that i didn't have my apple tree anymore so it didn't matter (laughs) and the second thing was a pair of red fuzzy pajamas were the first holidays that came up that year. And I felt really bereft. Suddenly those red fuzzy pajamas stood for everything I'd had to get rid of.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) So I went on Amazon, found red fuzzy pajamas and got another fair pair of red fuzzy pajamas. I want
0: to ask that obvious, probably the obvious question. Okay. Why did you need to create Prime Spark?
2: Yes. So that, um, I realized when I had gone through the downsizing that I really didn't want to go back into corporate, except to do the thinking environment work I do. So, I think Catherine, it was a series of things, but the but the straw for me was the day I went to a doctor to ask him, tell him about that the back of my legs hurt when I was walking and would he help me? And this man had walked in the office and with his iPad, you know, looked at my, and realized my age, and he never looked at me once. And what he said to me was, you, how much do you walk? And I say, well, I like to walk at least 10,000 steps a day, sometimes two, three miles, depending on the time. And he said, ah, I have patients who can't get to the mailbox. Find a path to walk where there are benches so you can sit down.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: I didn't say to him, George, whatever his name was, last year I did the California AIDS Lifecycle Ride. It is a bicycle ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles. It is 545 miles over seven days. Don't tell me to find a walking route with benches. So I went out because I had to have a follow-up visit and told the, receptionist. I had to have a follow-up business. I didn't want to see that man. And I thought, okay, you know, that's enough. And I just had started thinking about the times that I felt degraded, not seen. And I thought, that's not, that's not good enough. That's not who we are anymore. That's not who we are. And so I I tossed and turned trying to find a name and people talked about your golden years. I said, no, I want to talk about going forward, Get going forward. And so it was, I came up with, it's it's that spark inside in the prime of our lives mm-hmm. that when we yeah. can touch it, it will, it will ignite our way forward into our future so we can make a big difference in the world and a big difference in our own lives. I don't know a time in my history, that there's there's been more need for older women's wisdom and experience and skills than right now. So we need to get out there and make a difference. And we need to change the way society sees and treats older women.
0: Perfect. Hey. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm working on now. Well, that's we join you in that in that yes, movement. I know. I'm, I'm um, delighted. I'm delighted to have found you. So <laughs> how how do you help women, women over 50, 55, actually start to take really take charge of that, to speak up, speak out, be heard, uh, mm-hmm. know their wisdom? Right. How do you do that?
2: Well, I do coaching. Um, and so I, I do individual coaching and uh, really work through, you know, I mean, so many, so many women I talk to really aren't ready to quit, but they're not sure what to do next. And so we, we do that journey together. I've also just published a book called Prime Spark, Women Over 55. It's Our Time. It's actually a workbook. It has 30 questions, and it's designed for women to work through a question a day for 30 days. Um, and I am forming online groups, because I would like women to work through those questions by themselves so it's their thinking and their answer and then I would like to bring women together to talk about it and and really help each other figure out um, what do I want to do next what as a group can what as a group can we start to do that will change how we're seen and how we're treated and so those those are the first two things that I'm doing I'm doing coaching um, and with this book, I'm forming groups of women to talk about it.
1: So when you say that you want women to claim their power, as a senior woman, to claim, claim her power, what, what is it that you're really thinking about? I'm thinking about her um, really
2: going inside and understanding who she is. That had probably that not for all not for all women but for a lot of women got lost during the years of raising children, taking care of homes, taking care of everything. And um, I was just talking to a woman who lives near me yesterday, actually, and she had she was ta- we were talking about this, and she said, "I don't know who I am right now." Um, I've, 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 when I was working, I was a nurse, then I was a wife, then I was a mother, and I don't know who I am, and I'm not ready to stop, but I don't know what to do. And so I believe that we can go back inside and rediscover who am I really for myself, what are my major gifts that I have that maybe I haven't used for a while, but maybe I have, maybe I've taken care of a house forever and I'm really good at organizing um, and, and moving other people forward. And so I think I, I help people, women, I help women uh, get in touch with who am I really? What are my special skills? What of all that's going on right now? Am I most Um, upset about, interested in, where would I most like to make the difference and what of the skills that I have that I may not be paying attention to, can I apply to this situation, this issue, whatever it is. And it's not necessarily easy for all women to do this because of having lost who they were over the years and Messages that we get that are basically uh, by the time we're 55 or 60 telling us it's really time to start slowing down. Are you going to retire yet? Um, and we hear this we don't have models, and our daughters and our granddaughters need models, and we need to be the models.
1: Mm-hmm. The, um, th- the questions that you ask in this workbook you referenced. Do you want to just share a couple of them with us?
2: Um, yes, I need to stand up and go get a book, but I would be happy to do that.
1: I'll stay, we'll stay there. We'll we'll, uh, <laughs> okay. we'll 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 move around it in a, in a different way. Okay. Do you ever find that women are um, that they say, "Well, I've done all this and I've lived my life, and now I just want to be who I am," and and um, And just take life easy and, you know, go to the coffee shop every day for a year.
2: (laughs) I get that. (laughs) Um, Yes, Gail, I have a lot of trouble with that. And um, (laughs) I'll be really honest with you. Because in my entire professional life, I mean, I've spent over 40 years trying to help people do what they want to do. And whatever that is to be the best they can be. And if they need to stay in a job, even if they don't like it, to make the job as good as possible until they can find something else, but, but to help them do what they really want. And if that's what a woman really wants to do, then I guess that's what she should do. <laughs> I want to make sure, though, that there, she knows that there's a choice that at the moment, I'm not sure we all know there's a choice because we don't see a choice. We haven't been shown a choice. And so I want to make sure that I can make visible to her the choice that there there potentially is. Now, to be even more harsh about it, and I don't say this in most situations to individual women, but this is what I think. For women living for a lot of us, not everybody, not all women, but a lot of women living in the West, we don't have a right not to use our resources to make a difference. We have many of us been well educated, we have lots of technology, we have amazing skills, and if we are still able to make a difference, then I think we need to. Um, I wouldn't fight anybody on it if that's I mean, I have a really close friend, and when she I talked to her about all this, she said, "You know, Sarah, I think what I want to be right now is an ember. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to be a spark. I want to be an ember. Amber. And I thought that was really cute. Um, and if that's really what somebody wants, well, okay. But I want to make sure they know there's a choice because they may not have seen it.
1: Mm-hmm. You talk about thinking environments. Yes, and it seems that that's very applicable to what you're doing now. Yes, and that
2: Can is. You that a little?
1: Yeah, that is the way I coach. A thinking environment
2: is designed to help us think really, really well and for ourselves. And what we have found over the years is that. How well somebody thinks really depends on how they're treated while they're thinking. So it doesn't depend on the amount of education they have or the number of degrees or anything else. That may determine the information they have, but it doesn't determine how well they can think. And so if you wanna help somebody think really, really well, then you need to treat them really, really well. And in a thinking environment, we have 10 components that define a thinking environment. And the first one is attention. And attention in a thinking environment means the entire time someone is thinking and speaking, I keep my eyes on their eyes. I never look anywhere else, and I never interrupt. I wait until they're done, because what I'm paying attention to is, what is she gonna think next? And then what is she gonna think after that? And so the thinking environment involves asking, what more do you think or feel or want to say about that? And you take somebody absolutely as far as they can go with their own thinking before they need anything from me other than what more do you think or feel or want to say? And at some point, they may hit a wall that they can't get around. And usually that is an assumption. And so we help them leap over the assumption and get on with their thinking. And it is, you're absolutely right, Gail. That work is designed to be used in Prime Spark work.
0: Mm -hmm. It's
1: fascinating because, you know, we talk about listening, right? We just talk about how it's important to have good listening skills. And yet... The, what you just said about taking it a step further and a step further is the whole basis of creativity. Yes, yes. And, and yes, and so to release, help people release within them that creativity, then they can move to see all the different options that are available and, and what they can do.
2: Right, um, absolutely. And it, um, in most, I mean, I'm a, I'm a certified coach, so um, I'm, I'm, I can say this, that most coaching that I'm aware of teaches people how to ask really good questions that are well-timed. And that's fine, and there may be some really good work that comes out of that. But once I ask somebody a question, no matter how good the question is, I've taken them off their train of thought onto what I want them to do. And I'll never know where they would have gone if they were left to themselves to keep thinking.
0: Mm -hmm. Really good point. Excellent. But I just want to follow up on that. So how do you then, do you then engage with them at some point beyond asking what else are you thinking? Do you do any mirroring? Do you do help them interpret? none okay. of that
2: I, in, um, in the thinking environment you never interpret um but what 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 we do do as i said is if um if a person gets to a point and simply cannot think any further they can't get to whatever it is they, they want to solve or or get beyond then um it that can be for lots of that block can be for lots of reasons but very 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 often it is an assumption and we call that um, a, a not true um, blocking kind of assumption. And so what we do then we have a whole process for working through getting beyond that assumption. So um, just very superficially to say, so we don't say this, but the, but the, the question sort of becomes, if you knew instead, that the that, that, what would you do about this? And they know, they know what they would do. They just needed to get beyond that, that block. And so, yeah, I mean, I, we never interpret, we never mirror, we never do any of that, but we do take people um, to a resolution of their thinking.
0: Yeah. So you've been working with women for a good bit of time now, women 55 and over, and uh, Gail and I are often asked this question, so we'll ask you. Okay, <laughs> are there sort of key things that stand out for you in terms of what you hear or what you've learned from all this time with women over fifty-five?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think actually some of the main things I've learned—they're—they're they're not revolutionary, but they are so consistent that women have lost themselves. They don't know who they are. They are. Um, I don't, I just, I don't know how many women say to me, I just, I don't know who I am right now anymore. And I don't know what I want. I, I have, I not I haven't paid any attention to what I want. Yeah. And so, um, so that is so consistent. And, um, and I think, as I've already said this, I think that part of that is, in addition to you know, taking care of everybody forever, that we have no models. It's not true we don't have no models, but we don't have very many models for what I could be doing instead. So it's, it's hard to envision um, a life after children, a life after a career um. Why ne- and we don't, we don't have models for that. I mean, that's
0: just not what we were, have been expected to do. Um, yeah. So I don't think at our age group, we've never had models. No, I mean, I right? see, yeah, no, yes, yeah, abs- yes, absolutely.
2: I see, um, and this is a little bit grandiose and I apologize for that, but I see prime spark grand, grandiosely. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I see it as the third women's movement of the 1900s and the 2020s. Tw- mm-hmm. That the first one was to get the vote. Uh, and that vote was actually gotten for white women. It was not gotten yes. for for women of color. But, so we have to be careful about that. So the 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 movement to get the women to vote. The second one was in the 60s and 70s when we redefined Um, who we are in the family, who we are in the workplace, who we are in society. I mean, I have vivid memories of walking down Fifth Avenue, New York, swinging my bra.
1: Um,
2: And that was that movement. Now we're at this point, and we've come to a new point that, um, and this is not okay again. It is not okay the way that we're 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 seen, we're treated. Right. It's not okay. the kind of roles they're trying to put us in if you um was I've gotten very aware, as many of us have of magazine and and uh, the ads, and so many ads show older women needing help of one yeah. form or another. Mm-hmm. So I see this um as a third women's movement, um and we're just getting started um but it is up to us to start and we're doing this as i've said for our daughters and our granddaughters and for ourselves and our friends but more long lastingly for our daughters and granddaughters
1: well we we certainly wish you lots of good luck with prime spark Thank and you. you've given us many ideas to think about a lot of um what Catherine's and my work is is to think about these very same things. And so we appreciate your perspective on them and what you bring to the table. Thank Thank you, Gail. I
2: love I love the work you and Catherine are doing. I am so happy that I found it. I love it. You're doing such good work. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. You're very welcome.